We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. What kind of mythical powers does a Sun Devil have? We've got to consider that. It's embarrassing, but we are who we are. We're not a very good team, but we're three and one somehow. And we got all the voters fools thinking we're pretty good. Jaworski Lane at 275 pounds showed a heck of a lot of athletic ability. Welcome to another episode of the Rotowire College Football Podcast. It is Thursday. It is September 24th. I am Nick Whalen, and I am joined, as always, by John McKechnie. John, you know, you and I, I don't know if we're in a beef. I don't know if I would go that far to say it. I feel like we're in, like, a vicarious beef that doesn't actually involve either of us. But I was called out very publicly on yeah, our Yeah, this is a media-induced uh, right. rift that, that, that they're, trying to, they're trying to push us apart. They're trying. I hate the media. I hate when via, they do this. They, they're the doing mustache. it again. We had our all-company meeting on Wednesday, as we do every Wednesday. Normally, it's it's peaceful, it's civil. We go kind of sport by sport. We give our updates. You know what's going on, any any staffing issues. And this one was on track to be, I think, our shortest meeting ever. You know, everything went well week two in the NFL last week on the site. That's obviously been our main focus. And then, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I get called out for what I thought was a fairly impressive mustache, one that I've been working on since 
roughly mid-March. You know, there's been some trimming. There's been some, I think I shaved it once, um, but I, I honestly had thought that it was kind of at its peak this week. And, you know, not only was I called out, I was directly compared to you who, I mean, I, I would personally never debate this. Like your mustache, you know, almost more resembles that of like a walrus, whereas mine's <laughs> a little bit more, a little bit more pencily, uh, but, you know, clean cut nonetheless. I don't know, man. This is something that's, this debate has now been going on in Slack for over 24 hours. I just, I never thought it would come to this, I guess is what I mean to say. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it, it's one of those things where, again, they're, they're just trying to, you know, it's stir the pot, um, you know, a couple, a couple of bad eggs within the, within the company ranks are, are trying to sow seeds of division and, you know, uh, ragging on on your mustache i don't think that's fair and i think that your mustache was respectable and i think that especially uh you as like a a jags fan like it's an extremely duval mustache so i think you're going for the exact aesthetic that you want and you're achieving it so i I don't think that like you know if we were to trade mustaches then it would be a totally different situation and, and we would both be off the mark but I'm accomplishing what I want to with my mustache right. and you're accomplishing what you need to with yours. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that right. both of us in our respective mustache journeys are, are, are straying from the path. And I think that more people need to have a better understanding of that. And one of the, one of the people saying it is a mustachioed person himself uh, on occasion. So I, I was surprised that, that he yeah. didn't really pick up on that. Yeah. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, Seriously. that was that was a shot across the bow. And I mean, the guy you're referencing is the one who sells us ads on these podcasts. I mean, we he doesn't exist without us. And in some ways we don't exist without him. But uh, disappointing uh, development midweek and you know something that we're going to kind of try to work through. I would like to talk some college football, if you okay. don't mind. Is, that, is I mean, that cool with you? So week three, we're, we're finally kind of gradually working towards better and better slates each week. And I think week three was the best yet. Week four, which we'll, of course, get into, uh, is even better. But we had Clemson on the schedule, another blowout for the Tigers, all 49 of their points coming in the first half. Notre Dame, another big time program, another top 10 program, uh, annihilates South Florida at home. Um, the, the marquee game, and I, I think the one that if you're more of a casual fan that you maybe tuned in and watched on Saturday night was Miami and Louisville which was actually a really fun game, uh, one that featured, I'm trying to count it up in my head right now, 55 total points, I believe, in the second half alone. Miami finished with 47, Louisville with 34. Not a great night for the Louisville defense. Uh, I, you know, you, you kind of asked me earlier, like, is this the like 15th time in the last five years that we're going to declare Miami back? I'm going to say not quite yet, uh, but at the same time, a pretty impressive performance from Miami, which you know, kind of sealed the game early in the third quarter with back-to-back 75-yard touchdowns on two consecutive plays. Yeah, that that was great. And, uh, you know, we'll tie this all together because um, the, the DFS offerings during the day on Saturday got completely railroaded by whatever that was that Oklahoma State did. So, I scrambled. I threw together some some lineups for the night slate, um, including a lineup that had both Cameron Harris and uh, Jalen Knighton, the, the freshman running back. And those are the two guys, I believe, that that did uh, the, the 75 yards on, on back-to-back plays. So I was pretty happy about the way that th- those things turned out. And I think overall, when, when you talk about this Miami team right now, 
Um, you can definitely point to this run game being something that's going to be really consistent throughout the season. Um, I think with Derek King back there that in him posing the rushing threat, um, that kind of helps open things up for guys like, like Cameron Harris, who is better, way better than I, than I thought he was. He he's been really, really impressive, uh, through these first couple of weeks. And they got those two talented freshmen, uh, Knighton who almost pulled the Deshaun Jackson, so that that might lose him some carries. <laughs> and then uh, Don Chaney as well. Um, and then also the Miami uh, run blocking has been impressive. Like their, their offensive line isn't like this huge weak point that like it has been in recent years. I think the only question that needs to be answered on this Miami offense is the receiving core. I think it's a pretty mediocre receiving core by ACC standards and, and certainly by Miami standards. There isn't really any one standout player in, in that group. So they, they need to get that figured out. Um, Brevin Jordan, a beast, a tight end, of course. But um, other than that, yeah, I think that Miami, this is as back as they've looked since that second year under Mark Richt. So like back in 2017, when they, when they made the Orange Bowl and, and lost to Wisconsin, uh, that was the best that they've looked really in a while. Um, this team has a chance to make a similar amount of noise, provided that uh, they don't lose to Pittsburgh um, on the Friday after Thanksgiving or, or anything mm-hmm. like that this time around. If you're on Twitter Saturday night, uh, most of the discourse was focusing on just making fun of Louisville's defense, yep. uh, and rightfully so. Uh, the, 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 the back-to-back 75-yard plays, you're going to get that. Uh, but outside of those two plays, which, uh, again, shaped the game and basically won Miami the game, so you can't just completely remove that. But other than that, I mean, Louisville wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, basically you know, over half of Harris's rushing yards came on that one play. Um, you know, 75 of, of King's 325 came on one pass. Um, it, it wasn't a complete embarrassment for Louisville. Uh, you know, they, they were able to move the ball fairly well, over 300 yards passing, uh, did get up over 200 yards rushing, but barely got over four yards per carry. I mean, 49 rushing attempts for 209 yards for this Louisville offense. I mean, was, was that the distribution that you expected? Uh, that, that was a, a little bit interesting, the, the way that that played out. I thought that uh, Cunningham was very efficient in the, in the passing game. Um, Hawkins, the, the running back, was effective 6.1 yards per carry um, throughout the course. But Cunningham wasn't as effective as a rusher as maybe a, a lot of people were expected. So I think usually Louisville functions best when they have a couple guys re- really moving the ball on the ground and it and that kind of helps open things up for guys like Tutu Atwell and Des Fitzpatrick who both played really well of course but um still overall it just they they did their part the this Louisville offense and I think that they will continue to be a, a pretty electric offense throughout the course of the season they have a lot of continuity from last year we know most of this cast of characters uh, from a year ago Braden Smith is really the only one that wasn't a big impact guy a year ago that that's making some noise this time around um, but it, it it does like you said come down to this Louisville defense still struggling to gel and, and that could continue to be a limiting factor for, for the Cardinals uh, here the rest of the season. Speaking of rushing attempts, 51 carries for the UCF offense in their win, 49-21 over Georgia Tech. UCF uh, was ranked 14th coming into that game. They're at 13 right now. It, how, how real is UCF's claim as the best team in Florida? So there was a really interesting tweet that, that came out earlier this week. I think it was Andrea uh, Adelson from ESPN. She asked the, their stats department um, what, based on their FPI and a couple other things, uh, Central Florida's claim of being the best team in the state of Florida. How true is that? Where where would the Vegas line be if they were playing on a neutral field against Florida, Miami, Florida State? 
double-digit favorites, I think, against Miami, which which is really, really surprising. Um, definitely heavily favored against Florida State. That makes sense. And then even favored on a neutral field against the Florida Gators. So that that's a lot of respect being shown to the Knights. And, and it goes to show um, the kind of talent that they have, uh, not just on offense. I think that that's been a consistent theme for them for, for a while now, but the defense is caught up and now it's legit as well. It's causing a lot of havoc, causing a lot of turnovers. Um, so when you have that cooking on, on the other side of an electric offense led by Dylan Gabriel, I think the Knights are for real. I think that, you know, th- th- we've talked about it at various stages of the of the podcast and it's been just kind of like an overarching is this a year where a group of five team could get into the playoff just because of all the all the chaos going on and if central florida just runs through their schedule the way that they did back in 2017 and maybe some of the other blue bloods from the power five slip up then maybe there is an outside chance that central florida gets in i still wouldn't bet on it at at this stage but Mm -hmm. central florida is probably just as good as they were a couple of years ago. I mean, Dylan Gabriel looks like the absolute real deal. Um, left-handed Hawaiian guy, uh, kind of like Tua in, in some ways. Um, so I, I know it's a, a lofty comparison, but yeah, the, you see, this is a really, really people, good UCF. People forget team. Tua's Hawaiian. Yeah, they do. They do. They don't talk about it enough. Yeah. Uh, can you, before we move on to any more games, can you give me like the, the cliff notes on how these, like how the polls, how the rankings are going to handle like when the Big Ten comes back in next month, like I'm looking at the eight people right now and, you know, you don't see any Big Ten teams in there. But then you look at the coaches poll for this week and, you know, not only do you have an Alabama team at number two that hasn't played at all, you have, you know, zero and zero Ohio State ranked 10th uh, that won't play a game for exactly one more month. Wisconsin is in there at 17. Penn State's in there at 13. Uh, how, like how I was the AP poll specifically going to handle those teams like will will ohio state magically just vault up to like number eight uh the first week that they play a game i think so i you know i actually I haven't, haven't done enough anything definitive on that yeah yeah i haven't done enough research on that to to know for sure it was weird to have them all ranked um earlier on in the season when they're for that initial batch when it was clear that obviously especially at that point that that they weren't playing and and at that time they weren't even going to have a season so i don't i don't know exactly how they're going to do it maybe the, they'll start to work them in like the week or so before uh the big 10 resumes action in uh like october 24th or something like that but yeah that, that's going to be just this weird kind of underlying like how are you guys ranking them again uh, type of thing. So I don't know how exactly they're, they're planning on it. I know the the Athletics 76 uh, will not rank the, the Big Ten teams until they start playing now. So uh, okay. if, that, if that gives you uh, any semblance of an answer. We'll cross that bridge when we get there, I guess. <laughs> um, all right, let's do the weekly Grant Wells watch. A little bit of a lower scoring affair uh, for Marshall against App State, 17 to 7. Um, but typical Grant Wells. Doesn't matter if they're scoring 50. Doesn't matter if they're scoring 17. Marshall gets the win at home. That was huge. That was a really, really fun game to watch. Um, it, like you said, it wasn't quite as as high scoring on, on either side, but um, I thought App State played okay. I thought Marshall just played a, a better, more complete game overall, though. Um, I think it, it was a little bit more of the script that we can expect to see out of Marshall uh, here moving forward because 
Um, we saw Brendan Knox get loose and, and start to really um, do some damage on the ground. I think that's probably how Marshall wants to structure their offense. But knowing that they have a legitimate threat in Grant Wells um, in the passing game is definitely a huge element for them and, and something that they're going to continue to roll with. And then Marshall has had good defenses throughout Doc Holliday's tenure. That clearly is no different because this is a really talented App State offense. Um, so to hold them to seven points, they had this one great hustle play where they punched the ball out of an App State ball carrier's hands, like right near the goal line, and were able to recover that. And that was a huge turning point in that game. Um, that just goes to show how well coached the, this Marshall defense is. So when they're bringing the heat on that side of the ball, and then you have Grant Wells continuing to develop, obviously not the best stat line from him last week, but um, that, and then you get Brendan Knox rolling. Uh, yeah, this is this is legit. I mean, I think we, we talked about it before the show started. This was the first Marshall win over a ranked team since 2003 when they beat Kansas State. That was so, so long ago that Darren Sproles was on the roster for that Kansas State team. I went back and looked at the box score. Didn't recognize any other names, but Darren Sproles was an absolute, basically one-man team. Uh, and I, I think K-State actually won their division in the Big 12 that year. Yeah, I think that's the year that they beat, they knocked off Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship or whatever, but I think Oklahoma still won. I believe won. so. Yeah, but yeah, I know I know K State didn't uh, didn't do anything crazy after that. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, a, it's been a long time. 2000. I mean, for guys like you and I, like to me, like, 2003 doesn't seem that long ago. But then you do the math, and it's like, man, it's been almost 20 years uh, without a ranked win for Marshall. Looking good doing it, by the way. These Marshall, like the green on black, that is one mm. of the top looks in college football right now. Very, very sharp, very sharp. And they have they have like the it's the perfect Kelly green. Like I think yes. uh, if, you've, if you've seen like North Texas's green, it's a little it's just a shade or two over the edge. It's a little too loud. If you look at uh, the Rotowire like college football page, there there's a snapshot of the SMU North Texas game from last week. And the, the green on the North Texas uh, for a school that, that fancies itself as the mean green, they, they got to figure it out a little bit better. Not so mean after all. I mean, there's a reason that Marshall is always one of the teams that you pick when you when you want to do a rebuild on NCAA football. I mean, it's it's the location, it's the uniforms. Um, but I, I think they've they've finally perfected that shade of green because that, that's not the shade that they've always had. Like if you if you look back at like old Chad Pennington film, which I'm sure you're doing uh, weekly or biweekly, mm-hmm. uh, they weren't using that that shade of green. Uh, but that's my last thought on Marshall. Walk me through what happened with Oklahoma State and Tulsa. Uh, you know, Spencer Sanders leaves that game early with an ankle injury. It does sound like he's going to play this week. There, there hasn't been a real definitive update uh, in a couple of days, but uh, he ended up in a walking boot after that game. Uh, Mike Gundy did not seem very concerned whatsoever at all. Um, he, he used the term, we, we booted him up after the game. And he basically said, yeah, we'll get it off Tuesday, throw him out there Wednesday and, and go from there. So it, it seems like it's nothing too serious, but I mean, OK State went through three quarterbacks in this game, really was never able to get the offense going. But, you know, when you when you see some of these upsets, you know, I'm reminded of like Wisconsin losing to Illinois last season. And, you know, you go into like halftime and it's it's just clear that something's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, you know, it was injury related uh, to some degree with the quarterback position. At that point, it just becomes like it doesn't matter how ugly it gets. You, you just have to come away with the win. And, you know, when you see the 11th ranked team in the country beat Tulsa, 16 to seven, you know, needing 13 points in the fourth quarter to do so. It's a little depressing, but, you know, at the end of the day, if, if OK State is, you know, on the brink of a potential playoff berth, if, if it comes down to that, you're not really going to remember, you know, how how they fared in week one. You're just going to remember that they got the win. And, and ultimately, I'm sure it's frustrating if you're an Oklahoma State fan, but 
I think you have to look at it from a, a win is a win perspective. I think you have it right. Um, I think that, you know, they still have their whole season ahead of them and that's the important thing. They didn't lose. Um, it was just a very, it was a memorably ugly win and, and people will, uh, like remember that, but it, it'll be for, it'll be more of a distant memory if, you know, say they were, they're able to knock off Texas a little bit later on this season, or if they're able to go into Norman and get a win in Bedlam, that, that sort of thing. But, um, it's certainly for a team like Oklahoma state. And again, they're, they're starting quarterback going out, uh, definitely doesn't help things uh, for that game. But for a team that, that was kind of picked as this dark horse, oh, they have so much returning experience, especially on offense, but they also have a ton returning on defense. Like this should be, um, you know, maybe Oklahoma State's best chance to win the Big 12 in quite some time since, since like the Brandon Whedon days or, or something like that. Um, and it just it just didn't really it looked really, really clunky, I, I thought, for the most part. Um, but at least they were able to hold Tulsa's offense completely in check. So maybe you can you can point to that defense and say, OK, like those guys are going to be able to keep us in games in a way that they haven't in recent years, just because they have so many guys back on that side of the ball, because Tulsa does have a fairly explosive up tempo offense most of the time. So holding them to, to under 10 points is is a slight silver lining. But for our purposes, for fantasy purposes, for the the purposes of most of my lineups and, and a lot of people's lineups last week, uh, Chuba Hubbard giving you 93 yards and, and a touchdown on 27 carries uh, and negative receiving yards. Oh, it was brutal. And then Tylen Wallace was was basically working with a goose egg for, for most of that one until a little bit later on in the game. And 25 almost 25 yards a catch, you know, pretty good, um, but still fell that one yard short of the hundred yard bonus. Uh, so that was just like a little like added sting to, to it. So if, if you went with the heavy Oklahoma state stack, um, yeah, you, you know how your lineup turned out. I, I wasn't able to watch this one super closely. Like, was this a situation that once Sanders went out early, I mean, he only attempted two passes in the game, you know, they turned to Ethan Bullock, they turned to Shane Ellingworth, um, yeah, you know, at that point, was it just kind of like a, you know, if you're Tulsa, you're just packing the box, knowing that they want to run it through Hubbard. They did, and and to Tulsa's credit, you know, even even though they knew the the run was coming, they were they were game for it. Like they they got through that Oklahoma State offensive line. They they got some stops in the backfield. That they, they limited the the big run from Chuba that you know he's so famous for, that sort of thing. So yeah, I was I was you know secretly or. or quietly impressed by by what Tulsa did on defense and obviously it helped with Oklahoma State not having uh its full strength out there but even still I I thought that um Oklahoma State probably should have done better than what they did even without Mm -hmm. Sanders you know if you if you fancy yourself as a dark horse to to win the Big 12 you should be able to to beat up on a team like Tulsa certainly more than by nine points do you have any other DFS grievances to air uh, from week three before we moved to week four. That was the that was the big one, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, there there were a couple flops here and there for, from a couple other key guys. Um, I think. Oh, so I guess some of the Clemson stuff was disappointing. I would have to look back um, to here. Circle back with me on that at the end of the show. I'll have a couple other yeah. uh, grievances to air because there definitely were some from, from the daytime slate that, that I need to need to get off my chest so we can we can go into week four uh, with pure hearts and pure spirits. I mean, honestly, just once I want Clemson to go hard for even three quarters. 
against a team like Citadel. I mean, this was, like I said at the top, 49 nothing at the half. It finishes 49 nothing. Trevor Lawrence, you know, got you three touchdowns, you know, but still only 168 yards, only threw the ball nine times. Um, you can't ask for much more uh, given those constraints. And, and obviously some teams aren't just going to continue to run it up. But when, you, when you're so overmatched against a team like that, I mean, how do you t- tend to handle those type of situations from a DFS perspective? Like, what do you notice, whether it's your lineups or, or lineups you're competing against? Um, do you generally notice that people will buy in on Trevor Lawrence and just hope for a huge two quarters? Or do most people just tend to avoid him and, and ETN who, you know, if you went, if you rolled with ETN last week was basically a bust, only giving you 68 yards on the ground, no touchdowns um, and fairly limited, just one catch in the receiving game. Right. So, so ETN definitely stung and, and the logic played out pretty nicely um, because you had a situation where you had Chuba Hubbard on the board for a lot less. And so you, you figured like, okay, maybe uh, on a couple lineups here, I can go ahead, separate myself from the pack, go with ETN with the understanding that, yeah, I'm probably only going to get 10, maybe 12 carries out of it. But um, I laid out the case in, in my article last week that there were a lot of times last year where he had less than 14 carries and still averaged mm-hmm. like a, well over 100 yards. So it, he's not that volume dependent, but you definitely hope that that he's able to pull off more against a team like Citadel than, than what he was able to, especially when I think he was like 9,200 or something on DraftKings. So that definitely um, that definitely hurt a lot. And then when it comes to like you're saying with the general approach to guys like Trevor Lawrence um, on the on like the main slate against really, really overmatched teams, there there tends to be uh, some some ownership, like maybe 15, 20, 25 percent. But I think that most of the lineups that end up winning tend to avoid, uh, you know, the type of guy that is only going to be giving you two quarters, because even though the efficiency can be crazy, uh, the volume just doesn't end up being what it can be in, in other matchups. So, like, you know, if you you got great stuff from Trevor Lawrence, but like you could have also played Dylan Gabriel for a lot less and, and had a ton more success and, and ended up actually cashing. All right, let's turn our attention to week four. We got a 12 game DFS main slate. We'll be using DraftKings pricing as always. General thoughts on this slate. You know, we finally get our first taste of SEC action. That's going to infuse some really awesome games. And it, it's so great to see, like we're getting SEC conference games right away. You know, we're not messing around with, you know, Fox Valley Tech against Alabama in week one. I mean, these teams, we got Florida Ole Miss right away, uh, Kentucky Auburn, you know, a ranked versus ranked game. Uh, they, and the SEC did a great job of spreading these out. You know, there's there's an appealing game early. There's a couple appealing games in the afternoon. Um, and then you have some late games, Alabama, Missouri. Always fun to just watch Alabama, even though they should roll in that one. Um, you know, Tennessee, South Carolina is late. Florida State, Miami is the the big game on ESP, or on ABC, I should say. Um, so I, I think, you know, as I kind of hinted at the top of the show, I think this is by far um, the most entertaining slate that we're going to see uh, through four weeks. And it's, it's only going to get better. Right. So I'm pumped. Now it now it really starts to feel like the season with, with the SEC being back. Um, so we, we've got three of the of the power five conferences back in. I can't wait for the Big Ten to get back in as well. Um, but, yeah, there, there's some fun matchups here leading us off with that Kentucky Auburn game is going to be pretty sweet. Um, but as far as. Uh, like the DFS considerations are concerned, it's a little bit of a weird slate. I I think uh, like at first glance, I liked last week's slate a little bit better. Um, there were some more like weird games. Uh, there is obviously the Oklahoma State game that that drew drew me in and obviously burned me. Um, this time around, while I like 
as a football fan, Auburn versus Kentucky or or uh, or uh, Florida versus Ole Miss, um, Bama just being being out there and watching Bama, like you said, like all of that is great. But I think from like a DFS perspective, this is this is a tough nut to crack. This is a w- weird slate. And then I think also I have a, a little bit of an axe to grind with the DFS. Uh, sites for leaving Central Florida versus East Carolina off of the off the board because I think the over under for that game is like 77 um, and not having that on the slate and instead having Army versus Cincinnati or oh, Duke no. versus Virginia I what? feel like that's a gigantic missed opportunity and I know that it would be advantageous to the Sharps to to throw um, an AAC matchup in there among all these Power Five uh, games but at, at least with Army Cincy like come on like you you gotta give us east carolina central florida over that one yeah bring on the sharps you are the sharp i, I don't know i don't know what we're talking about here so what ultimately does determine which games make the main slate is there a, is there an actual formula for that or is it just it's just kind of uh you know yeah, the, picking, picking they, and choosing week to week yeah they have like a witch at, at hq that's like stirring a pot with eye of newt and then eventually the the <laughs> potion that comes out um is is the games that are chosen for for the uh for the main slate and the night slates respectively at, at those dfs sites so um i have a have a bone to pick with them but i won't say it too loudly because i don't want to be uh cursed or, or you know have the voodoo doll um type of thing <laughs> DraftKings does seem to love the army we'll we'll, we'll leave it at that yeah all right, let's start at the quarterback position, as we always do. Sam Ellinger leads the way. He is one of two players priced north of 8000 this week, the other being Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. They take on Kansas State. Any interest in either of these top two guys? Um, so I have, I have a lot of interest in Sam Ellinger. Um, I think that that's, that's a game that you can stack. It, it's similar to the, you know, you don't want to draw the direct comparison to the Oklahoma State, given how that game went uh, last week, but... This is a matchup between two up-tempo, high-scoring teams. Uh, both of them have played a game, and they've they've had a week off in between to uh, like get rested and ready, and, and you know any injuries, uh, maybe get get their key guys back uh, ready to play. Um, but I think Sam Ellinger on that Saturday night two weeks ago looked like he will end up being in the Heisman conversation. And I know that he was playing a, a bad UTEP team and everything like that, but you could not really play any better of a brand of, of quarterback uh, than Ellinger did in that game. And then he's going up now against a team in Texas tech that really, really struggled against Houston Baptist. And I know Houston Baptist has kind of like a wild and crazy um, run and shoot offense in their own right. But uh if Houston Baptist is, is pushing you to the brink, like I just can't even imagine what Texas is going to be able to do um, to, to that Red Raider defense. So I, I think it's going to be hard to stay away from Ellinger this week. I know that uh, paying up for quarterback isn't always the optimal strategy, but this week, especially when you have like Mikhail Cunningham going up against a, a really tough pit defense and Ian Book having his game canceled um, against Wake Forest, um, that, that kind of thins out those elite options. And I think that there's enough value options on the uh, a little bit further down the board at quarterback for, for your super flex spot in your lineup to where you can definitely justify going with Ellinger. Um, you could even game stack this one and, and go with uh, Ellinger and then uh, Alan Bowman at, at 7K and, and be pretty happy with what you're able to throw uh, throw together from there. But I, I definitely uh, am advocating a lot of Ellinger lineups, especially uh, for cash games. I think tournaments, it, it will also uh, be something that works out. 
What are your expectations for Miles Brennan, who has some of the biggest shoes to fill uh, in college football in recent memory? Uh, 7,700 is his price. So expectations fairly high for this LSU offense. Uh, they're heavily favored, 17 and a half points over Mississippi State. So all things considered, it should be you know somewhat of a soft opening uh, for Brennan and you know not going to be thrown into the fire right away. Uh, but no Jamar Chase. Uh, I think basically the consensus best receiver in the country. He, of course, has opted out, uh, but he does have Terrace Marshall. He does have plenty of other weapons. Uh, they're replacing a lot of stars from that national championship team. But, you know, LSU is, is kind of on the short list of, of those factories that just, you know, kind of print off uh, new skill position guys year to year. Um, I mean, how big of a drop off are we going to be talking from Joe Burrow, who had one of the best individual quarterback seasons we've seen uh, to Miles Brennan, who we, we got some glimpses of at times last year. Um, but I still think for the most part, he's he's going to be kind of a mystery to most of the country. Yeah, it, I think it, it will be a significant drop off from from Burrow to Brennan. But that's not to say that Brennan will be a flop by by any stretch. I, I think that's just to say that we might not see a season like what Burrow had, like the perfect storm, maybe ever again or maybe for, you know, like, that's like the once in, in every 20, 25 years type of season uh, that Burrow put together. Just absolutely ridiculous. So can't hold him to that standard. But the thing about Miles Brennan is before Joe Burrow got to LSU as a as a grad transfer in 2018, like Brennan was kind of anointed as like maybe he's going to be the guy that brings us out of like the the quarterback funk that, that we seem to have here at LSU. I think he was the same recruiting class as Jake Fromm and some of the other uh, 2017 quarterbacks. So he's been waiting in the wings for quite some time at LSU and that he's had a lot of time to get ready in this system. And like you said, he, even though uh, Jamar Chase isn't going to be playing and Justin Jefferson's in the NFL, you still have Terrace Marshall. You still have Keyshawn Boutte, like, the, uh, who's a freshman but still going to be nasty. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about him later. Um, Racy McMath, um, they, they have a guy in Arik Gilbert who um, is just getting all sorts of insane buzz. Uh, freshman tight end uh, from Georgia who's, yeah, just crazy. So we'll talk about him as well. Uh, so Brennan won't be hurting for weapons. I am interested to see what losing Joe Brady ends up doing as far as the, uh, the, the kind of philosophy of this offense goes. But there has been, you know, word out of out of LSU that Brennan is a little bit more of a natural downfield passer than Burrow. As we've seen at the NFL level, Burrow uh, has a great command of the game, probably doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. I think Brennan has a little bit more of that verticality to his passing game and intends to go that way. So uh, Brennan is definitely someone to consider. And uh, Mike Leach, even if there was like a nice collection of talent defensively at Miss State, I'm sure he's done something to like screw it up. So um, yeah, the, this should be pretty smooth sailing for the LSU offense. All right. So you have a couple guys I know that you're fading uh, this week, mostly based on matchups. I assume yep. John Reese Plumley, um, you know, thinking about fading uh, when you, when you look a little bit closer to the top, um, Faden uh, Desmond Ritter, I can't spit yep. it out, uh, Cincinnati going up against Army. Uh, what's the reasoning behind both of those decisions? Um, so with John Reese Plumley, it's just the unknown. I, I think that I might throw like a dollar lineup at an Ole Miss stack, but we just don't know what Lane Kiffin's Ole Miss team is going to look like. And I think that Matt Corral is a little bit more in line with what Lane Kiffin likes at quarterback. 
But John Reese Plumley was incredible last year, and he's not a great passer. He's not a gifted passer, but he's such a good athlete, and you have to respect that when he's on the field because if you don't, um, he's going to gash you. And he, he gashed LSU um, a year ago. Uh, this Florida team lost some guys on defense. I just don't know how Ole Miss is going to opt to attack Florida, and they definitely aren't going to be one of those schools that that makes it nice and easy. They're not going to be the the school that announces uh, a starter well in advance of of that game. I think they're going to keep us all guessing, so that makes it a little bit harder to justify going heavy at at, um, the Ole Miss quarterback situation. Um, If I were to pick between the two, it would be John Reese Plumlee over, over Matt Corral, but um, you know, I could end up looking like a total idiot for that. And it, it could be the corral show on Saturday. And then Desmond Ritter quarterback um, playing in like a not particularly high volume offense. Uh, Alec Pierce, their top receiver is out. And then Army is just going to drain that clock. So I, I think all of those factors um, make it pretty easy to fade Desmond Ritter at seventy nine hundred. And again, I'm, I'm also a little bit concerned about Mikhail Cunningham at eighty four hundred as well. But there, there's some uh, there's some pretty interesting uh, bargain bin quarterbacks this week as well, though. Yeah, tell me about Dewan Mathis, who apparently is getting the reins at Georgia with, with Jamie Newman opting out. Yes, so this is a pretty crazy story. So Dewan Mathis, um, a former Ohio State commit, flipped to Georgia, um, I think was a true freshman last year, could not play, actually had a surgery to remove a brain cyst. Very, very scary situation. It was not clear if he was ever going to play again. Um, and then uh, Georgia goes ahead. They lose Jake Fromm, obviously. They bring in Jamie Newman, and then they bring in JT Daniels. So it's like, man, Dwan Mathis, like, I'm glad he's on the team and everything and, and a great story and all that. But, like, there, there's just no way we're ever going to see him uh, in a Georgia uniform or, or, you know, getting a start, that sort of thing, especially when Georgia has, like, apparently – supposedly their next big thing at quarterback coming in this next recruiting cycle. So it just didn't feel like there was going to be room for Dwan Mathis to really take off at Georgia. But again, this, this is a guy that was um, an Ohio state commit. Like he wasn't just a a guy that was like a fringe three star that, that didn't really have offers from anywhere else. Like he was, he was a guy that was going to be a part of that recruiting class at Ohio state. Now with JT Daniels still not cleared um, from that ACL injury, I think Georgia's going to have to roll with Dwan Mathis on Saturday. Again, th- this could change come Saturday. You, you keep an eye for it, and, and we'll have the updates, of course. But as it stands, Dwan Mathis at 6,700. If you have to make the, the start kind of out of nowhere, Arkansas is not a bad place to do it. So I'm, I'm, no, it is not. Th- I'm thinking about rolling the dice with, with him, and I think that he's a, he's a crazy good story. And he, you know, the reports out of camp are that he's looked good. He's fit well with, with the new offense. Uh, under Munkin and he's supposedly like one of the faster guys on the team period so even if the passing isn't particularly great for the for this Georgia offense at least early on and you know he's more of like a one read type of guy I mean the athleticism could be good enough and and Arkansas's defense could be bad enough to where like the big runs are in play uh, when it comes to to Mathis so I, I like him a good bit this week is there a world in which he's able to, you know, hang on to this job long term once JT Daniels is eventually cleared? I think there is. It, it, if he gets to a hot start, this could be a situation. And we, we've seen it with Kirby Smart before, but we've also seen it the other way um, as well. But, you know, Jacob Eason was supposed to be the guy for a while. And, th- and then he gets dinged up. And then Jake Fromm comes in and never relinquishes the job. I don't know if Mathis is quite 
quite like the the chops of Jake Fromm coming in as a recruit. But um, if Mathis is running this offense well and and things are things are clicking on all cylinders, then I don't think that Kirby Smart is the kind of guy to rock rock the boat. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of guy, I think, for the most part. All right, let's look at the running back position. Are, are you back in on Chuba now? Kind of buy low if there is such a thing? I think I am, actually. You know, it's an interesting buying opportunity. We can't really take any of the um, stats from the West Virginia game um, to heart. That's who they're playing this week uh, because they opened up against Eastern Kentucky, I want to say. So, that, I mean, uh, we don't really th- think that the Eastern Kentucky was going to be able to move the ball on West Virginia anyway. This should be a different story. Um, the big thing, though, will be um, if Spencer Sanders is out, that takes away another running threat from that backfield and, and it allows West Virginia to play him a little bit more straight up. Um, so that, that could be tough, but we know at least from, from week one that Chuba is going to continue to get fed and be the engine of that offense. Um, so he's someone to, to keep an eye on, uh, this week, 8,700, obviously top bill, um, for, for running backs, but I think he has a better chance of hitting value than say, uh, Garrett Dokes of Cincinnati. Who's, who's the next most, um, expensive running back at 8,100. Yeah, it's an interesting pricing breakdown this week. You know, you have you have uh, Hubbard and Dokes, you know, above 8,000, and then only three guys or two guys, I guess, technically above 7,000. One guy, Sir Roderick Thompson at Texas Tech, right at 7,000. But you know, you have a much bigger glut of guys in that like 5,500 to 6,800 range. Yeah, because we have because this is such a sec heavy slate and also Virginia is playing their first game. There are a lot of dudes playing their Yeah, this is, this is week one for them. We don't have any actual data on them from 2020. All we know is, is projections that we, that we could have, you know, created over the course of the off season. We, we don't know for sure what these carry distributions are going to look like. So that's why it is like that muddled mess in the middle tier. Like, like you were mentioning there where there's so many guys uh, between five and 6,000. If I had to break it down uh, among guys from, from that tier, I mean, there, there's a handful that, that I like. Okay. I mean, Jerry and Ely is a very explosive player um, at Ole Miss, but he's going to be sharing some snaps. And if John Reese Plumley is starting, then he's going to be running the ball a fair bit. Um, I do like uh, two guys from the ACC, two guys that we do have a little bit of data on uh, one of them being Vincent Davis um, of Pittsburgh. I think that Pitt, if last week is any indication or the last couple of weeks, Pitt's going to run the ball a lot and Louisville is going to struggle to stop the run. So I think all of that combined, I think it sets up pretty well for Vincent Davis this week. And then uh, this will probably be the last time that that we see Jameer Gibbs under 6,000 for the rest of the season and, and the rest of his college career. Um, he was maybe the biggest recruiting win of like anybody that this, this cycle uh, for Georgia tech to pull him when Florida and a bunch of other really big name schools that, that aren't so far away from, from their competitive window um, for him to end up in Atlanta. That's huge. He looked like a stud right off the bat last week. He, he was a scratch in week one. Now he's fully good. He's full go. Um, the genie's out of the bottle, cat's out of the bag, however you want to say it. Um, there's no really putting him back. Like it, Jameer Gibbs is going to be a huge part of that Georgia Tech offense. So so he's definitely someone to, to get in on uh, before it's too late as far as the pricing goes. Um, and then looking elsewhere, 
Um, I think the Oklahoma backfield is going to be really interesting this week. We'll have to see if TJ Pledger is healthy and ready to go. Oklahoma not overly forthcoming with, with their injury reports right now. We do know that Ramondre Stevenson is still suspended, so it should be Pledger, but they have Marcus Major um, and they, they have um, the other kid that the other freshman that went off in, in that first game for, for Oklahoma. So he's going to be a factor in there as well. So the Oklahoma run game is going to be kind of difficult to figure out. I think it's going to be um, a headache once again. And then I think one safe running back that I like this week, 6,800 Kylan Hill um, going up against LSU. That That is tough, but I think we're going to see him catch the ball a lot more, be a little bit more involved as a pass catcher because of the new Mike Leach offense. Um, so Look out for that for for Kylan Hill, who's also a very good runner on top of it. Finally, we move to the receiver position. Charleston Rambo sits at the top. Uh, I know you like pairing him with Spencer Rattler um, in, in cash games. We've got Tutu Atwell at Louisville. Uh, had a you know solid, not not fantastic game last week against Miami. I, I do think he got in the end zone twice, uh, but the, the yardage was not was not huge. Josh Moore at Texas going up against what's seemingly always a bad Texas Tech defense. That spread sits at 16 points with an over-under of 70 and a half, uh, which by my calculation has to be the highest on this slate by a pretty good margin. believe so. Yeah, I'm trying to see. Yeah, that's that's a full 10 points higher than the next highest over-under. So, I mean, how, how heavy are you going to be targeting that game? It, yeah, it's definitely going to be going to be hard to stay away from that one. There's a lot of fantasy intrigue to to be had. So, a um, lot of lot of Texas. Um, I think Joshua Moore is probably the guy that I'm that I'm leaning towards uh, the most. Um, he looks he looks crazy good. Um, I, I don't remember him being quite like this a year ago, but um, now it looks like he might be the the alpha of the Texas Longhorn uh, receiving core. You will need to keep an eye out for for Jake Smith. Um, he missed that first game and that kind of opened the door for Joshua Moore. Um, but I think they, they were priced similarly going into that week too. So it was a, a nod from the, from the price makers, um, that Moore is, is right up there with Jake Smith, Jake Smith, one of my higher rated fantasy receivers coming into the season. So a lot to like from these Texas guys. I do like more at 7,100, uh, Smith. I probably won't get a ton of just because I'm worried that he's not going to play the full game. Um, if that ends up being the case, Tariq Black, the Michigan transfer. Transfer 6200 is a really really nice pivot um, if you want to go with that full um, Texas stack and then on I mean on the other side I, I don't think that Texas Tech can really like on a per play basis hang with Texas but they should be able to over the course of the game compile enough volume to where um, things work out well well for Eric Azukanma um, and also uh, TJ Vasher potentially as well so that they're plenty of options uh, from that game at, at the receiver position. And I think if you go value it at running back, you can afford to pay up um, at receiver for those type of guys. I think you're getting kind of a value on two pretty big names. Terrace Marshall at 7,000, you know, a little bit of um, uncertainty, I guess, with what we're going to see from Miles Brennan, like you hit on earlier. Uh, and then Tylen Wallace, kind of a similar situation, I think, to, to Chuba Hubbard, where maybe a little bit of a buy low opportunity after a poor, poor week three. Yeah, I, de I definitely agree with that. Uh, Marshall, um, this is it's a matter of who's going to be the the new alpha in LSU's receiving core. I think it's going to be him. He was pretty awesome last year. He just, you know, had to contend with um, Chase, the Bolitnikoff winner and and 
future first rounder Justin Jefferson. But at 7K, going up against this Miss State team, um, I think that he should be able to eat plenty. And then, yeah, like you said, I think you framed it right. Tylen Wallace, probably a, a nice little buy low, um, just 6,900. Uh, that might be the lowest we see him all year. I don't think that West Virginia's defense is really going to be able to to slow him down. It's one of those things where I probably won't get a ton of him if Sanders is out. But if Sanders is back in, um, it's going to be hard to stay away at that price tag. Any other lower price receivers you're taking a look at or, or at the tight end position? Yeah, there, there's a handful. I, I do like the, the board as far as the receivers go this week. Um, like you said, uh, J- or, um, Charleston Rambo, if you want to go a little bit higher up, um, lower down, George Pickens, I think is going to be option A, B and C in the Georgia passing game. So even if there's not a ton of volume for Georgia, I think that Pickens gets like a, a 35 percent target share or something like that. So that should interest you um, at 6,400. And he's just such a beast. I think that he might be the most talented receiver um, playing on this slate. Uh, He's crazy good. Um, So I think that he will do well against Arkansas. Looking elsewhere, Taj Harris, you kind of have to hold your nose, but he's shown us the two different ways that he can, he can affect a game. Uh, through the first two games of the season. In the first one, he was targeted a ton, um, but didn't really answer the bell as far as the reception volume goes against North Carolina. I think that he will have a slightly easier time going up against Georgia Tech secondary that, as we uh, talked about with Central Florida, um, is a a definite weakness. So I like Taj Harris, um, but he also can be explosive. He he caught a 69-yard touchdown pass against Pitt, and they don't really give those up very often. So I like Harris. Um, Kyle Pitts of florida florida is one of the rare teams at at the um power five level that that uh their best pass catcher is a tight end but that that is the case with kyle pitts he's crazy i imagine he's going to get into the end zone and and definitely push for like the lead in targets on the team so i love him at 5400 i like his teammate Kadarius tony as well really exciting um explosive player there um some of the Miss State guys, I didn't forgot to mention Miss State earlier, but it is a Mike Leach offense now. So KJ Costello being uh, lower priced, I think he's below 6K. Um, pairing him with either o- Osiris Mitchell will be the obvious one at 5200, but um, Shavers a little bit further down. I think he's like 3500 in Alabama transfer. Um, he's been competing to be on the field. I think that he might lock down one of those outside spots. Um, looking elsewhere, Oklahoma, Theo Howard, a guy that saw a decent amount of volume in that first game for the Sooners. I think that that will continue and he's just 3,800. So if you can get viable targets from an Oklahoma guy under 4k, um, that's, that's something that that's really, really interesting to me. So, um, those are the guys that, that I'm really looking out for. Um, yeah, that, that's my main, uh, list thus far. All right. Before we get into some sec win total talk, we have some breaking news. Oh. Uh, about five minutes ago, Rondale Moore is back in. What? He is back, baby. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. There's All right. Some Instagram, there's some Instagram speculation this afternoon. He deleted his farewell Purdue post. Uh, and I believe he just hopped on ESPN and made the announcement like five minutes ago. Oh, man, that rocks. Huge. I'm huge. so excited for that. That's um, that's huge. I, I can't believe that, that he's doing that, but I, I'm, I'm so there for it. I think that... Um, this might be the start of a trend. I know that Rashad Bateman is trying to do the same thing yep. uh, that came out earlier this week. Um, so I, I think if Rondale Moore already hired representation, then they're, they're going to need to um, maybe climb through a loophole or two. But I think the NCAA will be pretty understanding in this case. 
um, if a guy started uh, looking into representation after his season was canceled, um, you can't really fault them for that. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah, if Rondale Moore is back, then that the number one fantasy receiver is is back. And and I think that that's obviously for me. I'm I'm very excited. And, and for the entire nation, I think that more Rondale Moore is is always good. So that more more, yeah. baby. Let's go. I do wish that he could just go to a better team just for this year. Like we could maybe loan him out to, I don't know, Wisconsin, a team like that, <laughs> like any team but Purdue. Like it, it feels so weird. Like if you could place the most exciting player, almost hands down at this point in college football on any team, like would Purdue be in the bottom five? No, not necessarily. Uh, that I definitely get the the sentiment, but since Brom got there and, and maybe a lot of it has, has to do with Rondell Moore in general, but they do throw the ball a ton. And even when Rondell Moore was out last year, they, they were kind of fun to watch on offense. So at least there's that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's kind of my, my read on it. But um, it, it could certainly be better than Purdue. I'll, I'll, I will give you that. Either way, he's back. Um, is there any chance we see Jamar Chase try this? I haven't seen any indication that, that he would do that. Um, and he's a guy that I think probably has the most to lose. You know, you mentioned Bateman, you know, is working his way. I, I think PJ Fleck has been... Uh, I don't know if he's formally submitted an appeal, but it, it seems like the school is going to be fighting pretty hard to get Bateman back. Um, but I guess Jamar Chase has the most to lose out of those three from a draft perspective. And he also he has the least to gain. I think True. that he'll, he'll go into this draft as the wide receiver one and some crazy stuff would have to happen at the combine for that to right. not end up coming to fruition. So guys like Bateman, guys like Moore, uh, especially Rondell Moore with, with the injury last year, he needs to prove that he can stay healthy. Yeah. Um, and, and Bateman probably needs to show a little bit more on tape as far as being the true number one in Minnesota and not having Tyler Johnson not there to, um, to, you know, steal some of the coverage and, and uh, draw some of those double teams. So when he's the main focal point, uh, Bateman definitely, um, if he can check those boxes this year, that then he can help solidify his stock. Whereas Chase, he already had the amazing year last year. Right. I mean, that it, I can't imagine even like going back to LSU after that season or playing another down in college. Like that, it, it literally cannot get, get better than what LSU yeah. did last year. So I, I just don't really get it um, for for Chase. He can he can just chill as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that is true. That's a good point. I mean, winning the title too, on top of it, you know, the, mm -hmm. the individual season, the stats, the bullet and the comp are one thing, but to actually get to the mountaintop, you know, as a, as a sophomore and then, or in your second year, and then, you know, kind of have to go back on what, what's a good, but you know, there's, there's just lost no way. There's, right. There's just no way. Like, even if this LSU team is, you know, a top 10 or possibly top five team by the end of the year, it's not going to be as good as last year. And there's, there's just, there's almost no possible way that they could top that. Yeah, it's yeah, that was that 2019 LSU team really does feel like one of the greatest, if not the greatest seasons of all time. I mean, like they beat like seven teams that were ranked in the top 10 at the time that they played each other. I mean, just absolutely. And they blew the doors off of all of them. Like, right. Well, that, well, that's what I was going to say is that it it felt like the whole year it kept saying, like, are they really this good? Are they really this good? Like, you're just kind of waiting for them to be challenged. And it even in the national championship game, it like never really happened. Like they don't as great of a team as they are. And I totally agree with you. I think when we look back they're they're on the absolute pantheon of best single season teams. Um, but it's, it's hard to pick out like a single memory, you know, cause they were, they were just so dominant. Like it, it's not like, Oh yeah, there was that time that they returned a field goal, 110 yards, you know, or something like mm -hmm. that. Like I don't, I, I have a hard time picking out a single moment, I guess, from that season other than them just having superior talent and, and dominating everybody that, that came through. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a really good point. It, it's like, what is that that defining moment from the LSU 
championship run what like it it almost felt like it was more individual performances over a small span like like Joe Burrow throwing seven touchdowns against Oklahoma in the in the college football play I was like oh my god this is crazy or or um I don't know just like absolutely handing it to to Texas A&M who had beaten them in that crazy seven overtime game the year before um you know, going toe to toe with Tua in in Tuscaloosa and getting that win, and yep. Burrow, you know, after long after the fact, talking about how they kind of knew that they were going to go in there and beat the crap out of Alabama is like, man, that that team just had so much swagger. Yeah. It it really is up there with like the the 2001 Miami team yep. or or some of those USC teams, just just crazy. Yeah, yeah, the the inevitability that that you started to feel with LSU over the last three or four games of the year, I I, I don't think a team has matched that. You know, we've seen even those other great teams over the last 15, 20 years have all been tested at some point, and even against the Alabamas, it it never really felt like LSU was was ever backed up against the wall. So I mean, maybe that's their lasting legacy is that they just never faced that that kind of adversity. Which, when you're playing in the SEC uh, in in 2019, like I mean, that's a hell of a credit to them. It, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, as a as a Georgia guy, I've never felt more defeated before a game even started than, than that SEC championship game. <laughs> that, like, that's a great way to put it. All right. Speaking you. of the SEC, uh, we have we have all the SEC win totals listed here. Uh, LSU uh, has is that 7.0 is their total. Oh, yes. Uh, so, sorry. Something just came across for me as well. But um, LSU at seven, um, you know, I have a hard time seeing them losing only two games, so it that's a tough number. I hate the the um, the even number there, um, so so you don't even get the hook. Yeah, I'm just staying away from LSU. Um, I think that the ones that I am targeting, I kind of like Auburn over six and a half. I know that they're replacing a lot, but they still have Bo Nix. Um, I think that they can they can lose three games and still have this bet hit. Um, I think they have a decent chance at, at beating Georgia, especially if it's Dwan Mathis in the second week of the season. Obviously, they have to play Bama, um, but LSU could be down a little bit relative. I think that Texas A&M will just never get their crap together. Um, so give me give me Auburn over six and a half. Um, Georgia eight and a half. I'd take the under on that. Honestly, at, at this stage, I just don't think that they're going to have the offense to to make it work uh, when it counts. They do have the game um, in Tuscaloosa. I think they're going to lose that game. And I think there's a pretty good chance that they lose uh, one more on top of that. And that would be enough to, to seal the deal for that bet. Um, so I'll take Georgia on the under eight and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, Kentucky, their number is five. Kentucky and Tennessee, I value very, very similar this year. They're both going to be really tough. Um, Kentucky has a lot of returning experience and they're extremely well coached. Uh, Tennessee, uh, same thing, except minus the extremely well coached part. They're, they're fine enough coached, but they have a great offensive line that they can kind of bully people around with. Both those teams have arguably the best offensive lines in the conference, so like right up there with Alabama. And I'm not even kidding. Like they're, they're both crazy, crazy good. So I think both of those teams can, can win over, uh, their five games. Um, and I think it wouldn't, completely shock me if georgia lost to to one or both of them either i know georgia has to go up to kentucky um a little bit later on in the season so those are the those are the ones that particularly stood out to me the other um imply or i'm sorry win totals for for the rest of the conference i'm kind of in in stay away in stay away mode for the most part georgia's got a gauntlet 
uh, you know, they, they kind of get a layup uh, in this, I guess, week one for them uh, against Arkansas this week. But I mean, Auburn, Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky, Florida in five consecutive weeks is really, really tough. And there's, you know, I, I think there's a buy between Kentucky and Florida at the end, but Auburn, Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky in four straight weeks with no prep between uh, is, is really, really difficult. That's as, that's asking a lot. And, you know, it could be a, a carousel at quarterback. Um, if, if Mathis loses it, we still don't know that Daniels is the answer necessarily. Right. Well, and for Mathis to lose it, that means they probably lose a game. And then at yep. that point you got it, you basically have to run it the rest of the way or you're going under. See, exactly. And I just don't necessarily see that happening. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel more strongly that Georgia goes seven and three than I do 10 and zero, And it's, it's depressing because this is the best Georgia defense maybe that I, that we'll have ever seen. It's crazy deep on every level and crazy talented, crazy experienced. But I don't think the offense has the horses when it when it really matters to to make it work at least a couple times uh, this season against their tougher competition. It's going to it's going to be a sad, sad year, I think, for for me. So we'll have to see what uh, what kind of good content we can get out of that. So Arkansas is at one and a half. This is that's rude. This is tough. It's yeah, it's a little rude. And the under is favored minus 160. The overs plus 130. Um, I mean, if if they get to two wins, where are those coming on this schedule? It's not looking great. So they don't get Vanderbilt, do they? They don't get Vanderbilt. Uh, I mean, the only currently unranked teams on their schedule are Mississippi State. They play at Mississippi State next week. Uh, they play home against Ole Miss on October 17th, and they're at Missouri November 28th. Yeah, I think they're only going to beat Missouri. And even, I mean, even, even that, that's, that's going to be, be on the road. So, yeah, right. Man. Like even I mean, yeah, even their tough games are on the – so, yeah, the, the schedule makers, uh, that's rude, basically, what, what they did right. to uh, to Arkansas. I mean, they got the new head coach. They, they are kind of like the new whipping boy of the SEC other than, like, Vanderbilt. And for for even their their softer matchups to be on the road every single time out – Man, yeah. that's tough that's I mean, at least real Vanderbilt tough has like the academics to fall back on yeah like nobody expects anything out of Vanderbilt no no I mean in, in Vanderbilt had like all these opt-outs um so, yeah so I guess they're they're over under sitting at one they might have a fully defeated season uh that's <laughs> tough yeah I guess invariably when you had to switch it to all SEC games it, it could have gone this way especially yeah. when you have 10 of them but Man, it's when you see the nut like the official number posted and it's less than two wins. Yeah, no, exactly. And that, and I mean, normally it would for Arkansas, what would it be like three and a half, four, maybe because, you know, you have these uh, FCS games or, you know, some some crappy non-conference games sprinkled in that that, you know, even the worst SEC team will usually win. But you're totally right. There's something really, really tough about seeing a number under two for for an over under um, and that that final six weeks for Arkansas. These are six consecutive weeks with with no buys at AM, home against Tennessee, at Florida, home against LSU, at Missouri, home against Alabama. Oh, gosh, like, a, like even if they pull off the win against Missouri, your consolation prize is you have to play Alabama at your home stadium the following week. Yeah. To, to and the it's going to be like cold in the mountains in yeah, Arkansas. Right. It's, it's going to be like a sad gray day and Alabama is just going to come in there and like they don't want to be there either. But, you know, they're still going to take care of business. And it's like yeah. that's how your season ends. Just yeah, they, just they might bleak have day. to fly Pam Ward out there for that one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Get, uh, give me a couple of your bets for this week before we get into a quick uh, week four all name team. OK, so 
I'm really in on Texas this year. So uh, that certainly will never burn me. It never has in the past. Nope. Um, so we're we're riding here. Texas is back minus 17 and a half against Texas Tech. If Texas Tech can almost lose to Houston Baptist, they can definitely lose to Texas by three touchdowns. So the 17 and a half number definitely sticks out to me. I know that they'll they'll probably bring it a little bit better in this one. It's not their first game of the season, blah, 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 blah. Texas is just too good that they're going to they're going to wreck attack, I think. Um, And then South Carolina versus uh, Tennessee. I like Tennessee minus three and a half. I know they're on the road, but this game, I think, opened as a pick And I think the line ballooning in Tennessee's direction uh, is a pretty strong statement that Tennessee um, is getting a lot of bet, a lot of bets put down on them. I think a lot of people are starting to once the once the matchup has gotten closer here and we've seen what what South Carolina has. On their side, they lost their best running back before the season even got underway, so they're going to struggle to run the ball. They don't have Brian Edwards anymore. Um, they, they have a new quarterback in, in Colin Hill who got injured last year, and this is his first time in the SEC. He used to be Mike Bobo, the offensive coordinator, used to be his quarterback at Colorado State. This is a major, major jump up in competition. Tennessee has a lot of returning talent, like I mentioned. Um, so a I don't know what the uh, fan capacity uh, deal is in, in South Carolina, but it won't be like a rocking Williams Bryce stadium. That, that is a tough place to play, um, when, when it's rocking, but when, you know, you have limited fans or, or no fans, um, that, t- that takes away some of that home field advantage. And I, I think the Tennessee will be able to take care of business by more than a field goal. So you mentioned Texas being back. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on them this year. Uh, what would be like the ultimate college football playoff to determine who's, who's actually back like Texas, is Notre Dame maybe sneaking in there? Miami? Yeah, who's the fourth team? Yeah, those are the three. Um, There's some candidates. I mean, Michigan. Florida State. Mich- oh, yeah, I was going to say Florida, Florida State, Michigan. I think Michigan wins out out of those. It's been the longest for them in terms of a drought. Yeah, like they. I mean, I still contend that they were one of the four best teams uh, the year that they lost to Ohio State because of the the. Uh, favorable spot depending on listener depending right. on on how you view that that spot with JT Barrett on, on fourth favorable. down but I I thought Michigan was really good that year and that uh, I think they lost to Florida State in the Orange Bowl and that Jake Butt got hurt in that game but right. I they that was their closest and they haven't been really all that close since and they've gotten completely like the doors blown off them by Ohio State those following three seasons um, so it does feel like Michigan is is further away from being back relative to how close they were to being back just a few years yeah. ago. Um, and Miami on the back scale, um, they, they had a couple really down years these past two years. But I think having Derek King there, having Manny Diaz in his second year and, and uh, the turnover chain looking nice, looking shiny, uh, nice and disinfected, too. I, I was happy mm-hmm. to see the, the safety really nice. measures uh, with that as well. So Michigan, Miami, Texas. Um, the, and then yeah, I, I, I think, think USC belongs in here, too. Yeah, because they haven't made, they haven't really even sniffed the playoff. Well, they, well USC, Michigan, and Miami are kind of on the same timeline, where they all they were all good at the same time, and then they all kind of got bad at the same time. Yeah, that's I mean that's absolutely true, and and they've had some you know to varying degrees like some really embarrassing low moments, you know, between right. Lane Kiffin getting fired on the tarmac or Texas losing to Kansas. Uh, Miami having that that game against Clemson, uh, like it, it was like during what. Clemson's first playoff run. Uh, so this is a while ago, but th- it was the most like 
one-sided beatdown between two blue blood programs that I, I can really remember. And I think Al Golden got fired right after that yep. game. So, uh, yeah, they, there have been some definite rock-bottom lows for each of those programs in recent years. There should be a who's back bowl. That's what we need. You know, like maybe not like a idea. college football playoff, but just like a, you know, if 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 you're bowl eligible, we throw Texas against Michigan, and it's like, all right, who's back? And then we det- that determines it for yep. at least the next year. Yeah. So that all those teams that that we mentioned need to have that that back question mark label yeah. on them, and and if they're not in the playoff, then they then automatically they they get matched up in a bowl game right. against another exactly. team that that that's, has that label as well. I love it. I love that. Yeah, kind of an auto bid for just those like five or six teams. All right, let's get to the all name team for week four. Um, you know, we we have some teams debuting. You know, there's a, a few SEC names that uh, you know some of them you'll just know right away. Like yeah, of course that guy's in the SEC. Um, but I want to start. There's there's a guy at Georgia Tech who I you know they've played already this year, so I, I apologize for missing Adonicus Sanders. Adonicus, <laughs> incredible name. Uh, Sanders, strong last name, but obviously this is more about Adonicus. Uh, he's a receiver at Georgia Tech. Uh, we have Maximilian Mang, a receiver at, at Syracuse. Max Mang would be kind of a crazy name, but Maximilian takes it to another level. Uh, Keon Zipperer at uh florida not keon zipper zipperer so he's right. he's not the zippery he's the zipperer uh and then racy mcmath i mean this guy is a carryover from last year insane first name insane last name um i mean i i don't think it's knowledge mcdaniel or harry trotter level those guys i mean you come at the king you best not miss you know you Correct. have to this is kind of a king of the hill situation um and nobody's top knowledge mcdaniel or harry trotter yet but racy mcmath for me is definitely up there I, I love it. And it, and it's like, it, it just feels like a, like an LSU receiver name, but without even like looking at yeah. anything else about him. So, um, that makes sense. And the, the other LSU receiver, Kayshawn Boutte, uh, what a name. And, you know, just being like a swagged out freshman receiver that that's already like starting for LSU. Yeah. You just love to see it. it. It's so good. Um, and then, you know, kind of on, on like the more like blue collar, uh, end of the scale, you got Justin Rigg, uh, cool. from Kentucky. You just, I mean, that's just a great name. And, and that's just, rig with two G's. It's double rig, double yep. rig, uh, re- much respect. And then, um, from Ole Miss, uh, from last year and, and this year, uh, Snoop Connor, uh, hard to root against a guy named Snoop. Um, and, and uh, right. there's something about like the Snoop Connor pairing. It just sounds really, really, that's just a quality, quality name. I, I just can't get enough of it. And then you go to Auburn, you got a guy named Cord Sandberg. Like, absolutely. Oh, you, mean to, you mean to tell me he's a quarterback at Auburn? Yeah, right. And, and would you believe me if he if I told you that he used to play minor league baseball, didn't work out. So then he went. So he's like a 27 year old college student named named Cord. Uh, incredible. Welcome back, <laughs> SEC. Good to have Amen. you back. I'm with you on Snoop Connor, by the way. Like that's one of those, you know, if your name is Snoop, you're you're automatically going to land on this list. I'm I'm trying to do some recon on what his real name is. I'm having a, a little bit of a difficult time uh, hunting that down right now. I'm on the Ole Miss website, um, you know, which we we've talked about with a couple of these guys. Usually you'll get this kind of info in the bio section, right? Uh, but I, I'm a little disappointed here. Uh, let's see. He's the son of JD and Michelle. Oh, here we go. Full name is Jared. Yeah. No, mm. thanks. We're going, All right, we're we'll, we'll edit this. that out. Jared Connor, unremarkable. Snoop Connor, all-name team. Now we're talking. Uh, we have Iverson Clement, or Clement, not sure, uh, at uh, running back at Florida. I, I think that was probably, you know, he, he was probably born around, like, 2001. Iverson, you know, had, had just gone to the finals at that point. I'm assuming Cover his parents were like, 
yeah, they're like, well, we, it would be a lot of trouble to go and like change our last name to Iverson. And we, we, if we name him Allen, that's not really enough of a, you know, if you name your kid LeBron, it's like, okay, there's only one LeBron. There's a reason you did this. You know, Allen's not really descriptive enough. Could be Allen Houston, uh, could be Villanova shooting guard, Allen Ray, you know, uh, Ray Allen perhaps. Um, so I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone whose first name is Iverson. No, it, it's a nice sounding first name too. It's, it's it like poetic sounding. Yeah. You could kind of, you could go by Ivy. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of like it. Uh, I mean, this isn't a kind of a, a layup, but Felipe Franks, who's now in Arkansas. I mean, that, that's always been good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's when, when we do like the all decade name team, I think he's going to have a spot on there. Just an unbelievable, like Felipe by itself. And then Felipe Franks, like that's a, I don't even know if that's an NCAA football name. Like, I don't, I don't know if NCAA football's game engine is even capable of coming up with that. And it, it was, it was especially beautiful. Um, you know, Felipe Franks, Florida, um, right. just like the, the triple alliteration, you got the F on the helmet at Florida. That's when it was really, really prime. Uh, so him, uh, being in Arkansas, not as awesome, but I, I, it's still, it still stands the test of time. That, that name Felipe Franks is still good. I'm just glad he's still around. I don't care where he's playing. And and yeah. of course, like him being like somewhat of a controversial figure just adds to it. Like it, it would be way worse if he was just this mild mannered quarterback. Yeah, but he, yeah, he is kind of a wild man out there. So so it definitely adds that extra layer of spice that really puts him over the top. Is there anyone from this week's list who you would maybe you know, mark or kind of, you know, earmark as a little bit of an early finalist for for the all name team by the end of the year? Uh, Maximilian Mang is pretty incredible. Um, I I do stand Kayshawn Boutte as well because I think that we also have the added bonus of him probably like being a factor this year as a fr- yep. like the the vaunted like freshman star receiver. I think that 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 always like adds a little bit extra flair to it. So um, I think that that Boutte, um, Mang, and uh, Justin Rigg, he's not he's not going to be that first team all name, but I think that you know you you fill out the third team list and it's like yep. yeah, how do we leave off? We can't leave off Justin Rigg. So right. um, yeah, the the Rigg will be present there at the end of the season. It's got the Rigg has staying power. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming. And his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 